Have you ever had a very strong either inclination or feeling about yourself or a thing, a person, literally anything? And this feeling was pretty pervasive, it was persistent, and you didn't necessarily have the words to articulate it. Maybe it was, you know, a combination of excitement and fear, or anger and resistance, or love and resentment. Sort of just emotions that combine and, and weave together in ways that make it difficult for us to understand them ourselves. Chances are, if you're a person who lives on planet Earth, you can't really find explanation for all the things you feel. We go about our lives with this false sense of autonomy and this false sense that we, since we are individuals, that we somehow have control over what we think, what we do, what we feel, how others feel about us. We, we have this sense, maybe it's not explicitly stated to ourselves or to others, but we have this sense that, yeah, you know, I, I control my day, I control my weeks, I control my years. I would like to present a very overlooked factor, in my opinion, that directly contradicts that sentiment, whether you have it or not. Today, I want to talk about language, meaning not just the ability to speak, but the fact that there are thousands of different languages. And I want to articulate how that quite literally controls the destiny, if we want to use that word, of your life, or it controls the everyday function and attention that your mind gravitates toward. It, it, it controls your worldview. It controls your, your relationship with yourself. It controls your relationship with your society. Literally every aspect of your life, to a large extent, is dictated by not only your biological ability to speak, but the geographical, cultural place that you happen to be born in, which then dictates the language that you happen to speak. Whether that's one, two, or three, if you're lucky enough to be bi, trilingual, you have, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty special. You got this, there's a whole sort of brain anatomy changes that come with being bilingual. But for this, I'm going to mainly focus on single language speaking individuals such as myself and how we are quite literally limited and predetermined by the language that we speak. All right, so we're going to be talking about, for this fun fact, we're going to be talking about what I just did just now, which was, in case you couldn't tell, that was music, M-U-S-I-C, music. Uh, fun fact about music, everyone loves it, you know, all sorts of shapes and sizes and different types of music. And what is music, really? Let's, let's break down what music is at its core level, right? It's vibration. That's literally all it is. Maybe maybe the vibration is, is soothing or it's like super hype. You know, you're at a club and your whole body's pulsing to this 
hard EDM bass and the glitters flaring and everything and sweaty people are touching you. It's awesome. But music at its core is vibration. Right now I'm vibrating my vocal cords and your eardrums are vibrating and together those vibrations create some sort of meaning or emotion and whatnot. So fun fact about music, music has been found to have served an evolutionary purpose. Yes, not only is it fun, does it set the mood, does it make uh, uh, sports games way more exciting, all those different applications of music. Yes, it has helped us survive. Now, listening to music is quite heavily studied scientifically, psychologically. However, it's difficult to really pinpoint exact feelings or situations in which musical phenomena occur since only you can only do so much with with lab setup and testing now i thought about talking about this because i was listening to a song the other day and it was for me i get a lot of a lot of enjoyment out of good lyrics especially lyrics that almost crescendo in the same way that the musical accompaniment is. So what I mean by that is let's say someone's telling a story and the story is intensifying or it's or it's getting more interesting. And while that's happening, the musical accompaniment, whether it's classical orchestral music or that's kind of ideal. But anyways, I just love when when a lyrical story or or point caps off simultaneously with music and it's Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So I was listening and I got a full full body chills. You know, I've talked about that before. Head to toe, toe to head, right back up. It was crazy. And I got thinking, I'm like, why does that happen? Like what anatomically is going on where my literal hand and arm is tingling because of what my brain heard in a song? And so I tried to find, you know, a, a nerve thing or some explanation where it's like oh yeah these nerves in your arm respond when some auditory you know but I didn't really find anything like that it was kind of difficult but I what, what I did find is that it's been found that music listening to music releases oxytocin in the brain don't quote me on I'm pretty sure it's oxytocin I don't have it in front of me but oxytocin is the cuddle hormone fun name and that basically just means you know when oxytocin is being released in your brain, you're most likely in a comfy, cozy, cuddly position. Maybe you're having a great conversation by the fire. Maybe you're watching a movie with your with your babe on the couch, or maybe you're you know just made a really nice connection with a friend or something. You know, you know, good stuff. Good stuff. We like oxytocin. Now this is released as we're listening to music, and what oxytocin also does is it assists with bonding. So let's say you and a person are meeting for the first time. You're on a date or you're on a work lunch or, you're, you know, you're doing something where you're sitting down with someone one-on-one. -on -one. What's more comfortable, sitting in dead silence with that person or sitting amongst a nice, tasteful music, maybe some live jazz, maybe some nice guitar. It doesn't matter what it is, but most people would probably agree that a musical accompaniment makes in-person interactions either better or or just different in a nice way you know so music chemically physiologically biologically increases bonding between humans when we increase bonding between humans 
We get stuff done. We form relationships. We see people better, not just physically see them, but we, we see them and their needs and we know what they're doing in relation to what we're doing. Look at us. We've got skyscrapers. We've got educational systems. We've explored the oceans. We've literally gone to outer space. How do we do that? We built stuff. Well, how do we build stuff? We work together. Well, how do we work together? We had music. And I know that's, you know, you can't just chalk up everything to music, but think about it. Vibration, remember, is what we said is the root of music. We can create music with our with our voices. We can create music with external things. We can create music with our body. I can, you know, slap my chest and vibration occurs and you can sequence that into what we call music. So the, the fundamental aspect of our human experience is music and vibration and being able to communicate those things to each other. So I just thought this was so freaking cool when it's been it's been said you know it's been said it hasn't been proven obviously nothing's proven i don't think but our early early ancestors survived and thrived due in large part to their ability to utilize music when it came to building communities you're sitting by the fire after a long day of hunting and gathering and you you know start playing a little diddle on on the on the rock with your nice new sticks that you just found and your boy next to you is like okay and he starts bobbing his head a little bit and then you start throwing a couple like nice melodic grunts in there and you're like and everyone's like getting along to it and they start grooving and then someone busts out the string instruments and then the whole thing the whole group they're all up and dancing and partying and it's just like wow thank god we figured this out because now we're going to conquer the whole planet and leave uh, uh, an unmovable footprint about the fact that we are here until everything dies you know so music every time you listen to it say thanks music for making my life easier in that i am chemically bonding with my fellow human thanks to these good vibrations you know now language is a difficult topic to address because it comes up everywhere politics science economics every everything that humans do as a social species we've evolved as social animals it relies on language and cooperation and and signaling and symbolism and we need to be able to communicate with one another in order to survive and thrive and that's what we've done so in order to avoid extreme generality i want to focus specifically on the individual and how language shapes or has the capacity to shape our relationships with ourselves and, you know, by extension, relationships with the people around us. So I've thought about this for quite a while. When I spent time in England, I took a social interaction and communication course, and we talked a lot about the fundamentals, like really, really raw framework of talking with people. How do we know that it's my turn to talk versus your turn to talk in a large group of people discussing an issue? How do we successfully transition from person to person, give them time to speak, halt their time, and then res resume the time of another? It's When you think about it like that, it's extremely complex and relies heavily on something that's unseen and kind of beyond our awareness in those moments. And this really sparked an interest in how much 
our social interaction and our communication capacities affect our lives. What if every human didn't have vocal cords and the capacity to speak and we only relied on sign language? Fun fact, people who are born without the ability to hear and eventually develop the knowledge of sign language, they actually think in sign. So imagine you, all the thoughts you have day to day, the voice that's in your head, the words that come up and go out, and, and, and all of that is just hand signals. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. So these people, without a doubt, have a fundamentally different experience of life itself, of, of having a sense of self, of having an awareness of others. Their experience of that is so much different than yours might be when you have a plethora of words to assign to feelings or experiences, whereas they have hand symbols. One might think maybe this dramatically changes that person's relationship with their body. If, if your communication of experience relies on the orientation of a part of your body, maybe their mind-body connection is far greater than someone who just relies on verbal language. I don't know, that's kind of off topic. But anyways, when we think about language, it's inextricably tied to a culture, the culture that speaks it. Um, they often evolve over time and they bleed together. People migrate and language moves and evolves. It's a very, very interesting and complex system of evolution that's almost separate from the evolution of individual human bodies. It's a evolution of the connection between all humans. <laughs> like, what? Anyways, um, according to famous linguists, uh, specifically Noam Chomsky, language is thought to be a biological endowment. You always hear it's easier to learn a language when you're young. So if you want your kids to be bilingual and you speak two languages fluently, you got to start when they're young. And the reason being is our minds are just like molten metal when we're kids, ready to be shaped into whatever language or form of articulation that that child is, is surrounded by. So we have this biological innate ability to learn, accept, and spread language, which is in and of itself pretty fascinating. Furthermore, people have theorized that language was founded with metaphor. And when you think about metaphor, it's not as respected or not as widely used in, in let's say, everyday interaction, right? I mean, when you talk about music, there's metaphor all the time. If, the, if you were to count up the likes or the as in songs, you'd be overwhelmed by how much metaphor there is. And what linguists have theorized is that language started with metaphor. If you think about primitive humans with very little access to knowledge, tools, any sort of scientific understanding of their world, the, the most commonsensical way to begin that exploration is by comparing ourselves and other things to things in nature, like, oh, Hard as a rock, you know, if, if we're describing someone's body and their strength and we compare them to rocks because we know rocks to be strong and could be used as tools and things like that. So the actual 
constructive language is founded on the comparison of of self to the natural world which is fascinating like <laughs> the entire human species has thrived and survived because of our ability to compare oh this is like this and if that's like this then that means i can do this with that very very unspecific yes but you know what i mean now going off the idea that language is tied to culture when we think about culture culture is tied to literally everything about your life your relationships the way you view your place in the society what you're expected to contribute how you view the world either scientifically religiously maybe you don't have any sort of theistic inclinations maybe the idea of living in a world without a god is crazy and impossible the way you feel about yourself and your sexuality and and your body your relationship with who you are when you look in the mirror or who you are when you reflect on yourself literally everything relies on the language that you have as a tool to describe that there is this common what i've come to realize misconception about humans is that thought is what separates us from every other living thing and i've come to disagree because thought is it's it's applying language to experience the first thing that happens is experience and feeling and and that's that's all I, can, I mean it's just we are alive and then we get language to articulate that aliveness and those experiences and those feelings now being born in america english speaking country which is one of the languages that is most widely learned and taught around the world because it's become prominent in business, economics, government, I mean the United Nations, like English is pervasive throughout the world in its practicality of use in all sorts of fields. And what that does, and this is just my own personal speculation, it creates this sense again, this could be you you may recognize this directly or it's just something that kind of sits back seat in your worldview. It creates this sense that English is somehow the best language. And I say that roughly. Obviously, I'm not saying it's the best language, but either the easiest language to use or the most universal or or anything along those lines. And again, that's maybe not stated to oneself explicitly, but it's kind of just this idea that you have especially as a kid you know when you're learning about the world and oh everyone speaks english english is the way to go blah 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 so you think oh my language is is great and it's all encompassing and it's really useful for living my life and then you maybe learn other languages or you learn about other cultures and you learn about the way they live and and the words they have and when i thought about doing this topic I didn't really know how I wanted to approach it, but after literally like a single Google search of words that exist in other languages but don't exist in English, I was just hit with this wave of possible emotional understanding that I have never had access to because of the words available in my language's vocabulary. So 
I want to give a few examples of really, really cool words that I've found that exist in other languages but don't have um, a direct translation in English. Obviously, translation exists universally, but you have to understand that the, the, the essence of a word cannot ever be fully translated to another language, another culture with this different set of beliefs and ideas about the world around them, right? So studying other languages and other words is extremely beneficial to kind of shaping your worldview and also shaping your understanding of yourself. And before I give these examples, think about the amount of times you've had a, I said, I was saying this before, but think about feelings that you've had that have been very persistent and pervasive, possibly bringing you down throughout days, weeks, months, years. And think about the words or, or the explanations you assign to those feelings. So what I believe is that the first thing that exists is a feeling. And then the next thing that exists is our linguistic assignment to that feeling. So for example, when I say, what's a tree? What do you think of? Okay, I know what a tree is. It's a tree. It's got, you know, a trunk and branches and leaves and it grows in the ground and trees are great. They produce oxygen. We have the word tree and it creates this almost um, template in our minds of what a tree is. And it's a lot. And that's practical for how our minds to process things. We simplify, categorize and, and things of that nature. But what that takes away is the essence of what a tree or a specific tree might be. Think about mangrove trees, which, which literally hold the foundations of harbors together in, in violent oceanic storms. Think about redwood trees, which tower over structures that man was capable of making for thousands of years and live longer than the average human lifespan. And when you, when you break down these kind of template words, you see a whole lot more wonder and complexity to seemingly mundane things that we've assigned a, a word to and then kind of, all right, that's sorted. Let's move on to the next thing. Another great example is the word depression, which is a word we're hearing more and more and more than we've ever heard it before in, in childhood, in schools, in, in just medicine in general, depression is becoming this huge, huge problem. And depression is just one word. We have we have chronic depression, there's mild depression, there's there's different variants of the word depression. But in general, you'll find that the word stays the same, despite the case. So think about in your own life, have you been depressed? Are you depressed right now? Do you do you know what it is that can make you feel depressed? Are you suffering from depression that's been pervasive for years? And the problem with our language is that when one person has a bad day or has a bad week, they can say, I'm feeling depressed. When another person is struggling for years, maybe it's family trauma, grief, anything of that nature where it's really, really heavy, if depression is still the only word that they have access to describe those feelings, it can take away the gravity and the substance and the uniqueness of those feelings to that individual. 
You take a room full of people who label themselves depressed and I guarantee every single one will have a dramatically different experience than the person next to them. But we don't have any words to distinguish between those people. So it can take away that feeling of feeling of being seen and unique in your own experience. Like if anyone can also feel the same as you by categorizing themselves as depressed or anxious or grieving, then all of those people with those grieving, anxious, depressed symptoms are kind of not intentionally, but in a, in a big sense, reduced to the same person, the same experience. Oh, someone who's grieving is the same as another person who's grieving. Someone who's depressed is the same as another person who's depressed. That's what that's how words d- dictate our thinking. We we have a word and we understand its meaning. So it's difficult for us to disassociate that word with the learned meaning and to see the cases and the things and the people that we're looking at as ultimately unique in their own right. So I'm not saying that everything about our language is bad or that it's negative, but just to be aware of how poignant and and possible it is for even someone who's a practicing psychologist or someone who's supposed to know everything about this stuff, they still are succumb to the rules and the standards of language. So oftentimes it can be difficult to remove ourselves from that line of thinking because it's comfortable. You can classify things. You can point at something and say, this is that, I know what that is, so it's not a threat to me anymore, or or this is how this is supposed to go, and I want to make sure that I know where things are going, the words we use, the things we understand. That's how our brains work, and that's okay, and that's excellent, and that's how we survive, but that isn't conducive to living your life, loving yourself, loving life, and all that good stuff. So what essentially what I'm trying to articulate is that the feelings we feel all day, every day, from the start to the end of our lives, we only have the capacity to label them given what our language has at its disposal. And that might seem, okay, yeah, obviously, but when you really think about the amount of weight that that can have on someone, think about the words that you call yourself on a day-to-day basis. Okay, who am I? What am I? What am I like? Am I funny? Am I smart? Am I obnoxious? Am I stubborn? Am I responsible? Am I a different mixture of these things on different days? And when we constantly use language to describe ourselves and to analyze ourselves, we start to chip away at the essence of what makes us unique, special individuals with, with a completely unique lifetime. The experiences that every individual has throughout their life is the only set of experiences experienced in that way in all of history, or at least that's what I believe. Maybe you believe that there's been so many people that there's some crossover, but I don't think so. And like I was saying earlier with the tree, when we just call everything a tree, we call everything depression, it takes away 
from that person's unique needs and that person's individuality and their spirit. And that collectively can really weigh a heavy toll on one's own experience of their own life. Feelings weave together and they evolve in ways that we can't possibly understand. And there's no language that can account for the complexity of that evolution of emotion and and observation and experience. So thinking about that, putting all that together, I found some words that I want to share that I think are so cool. And when you think like, wow, if I had grown up with this word in my toolbox to apply to my experience, maybe the experiences that I've had I would have taken away from completely differently. And one of the points I made was, if you have two people in opposite parts of the world with with identical feelings for the most part, those feelings could leave one person depressed or hurt or embarrassed, and another might learn and grow from them and appreciate the hardship or, or whatever those feelings produced. So I'm kinda just gonna go through this list I might spend more time on some than others because, you know, obviously I have favorites. So, and also the pronunciation here is totally off rip. They're going to be terrible, but um, yeah. So first word is a Russian word, razbluito. I don't know what the accent was there. It refers to the feelings you have towards someone you once loved, but no longer do. And when I first saw this, I was like, I've literally never heard of that concept or at least heard of it enough for it to like sit in my memory. There's an actual word to describe the way you feel for someone that you used to have a deep emotional connection with. And in America, at least, you know, oh, that's my ex-wife, my ex-girlfriend, my ex. When you say my ex, that kind of, that tells the person what they need to know, right? Okay, that's, you know, you used to be in a relationship with that person. Obviously, there's some complicated feelings there. Um, but, but having a word to describe those complicated feelings where you don't, you're not actively in love with someone, you're not infatuated by them, but you once loved them. So they are important to you in a way that you, you don't really have words for. And that like, when I saw this, I was like, wow, that's, you know, in, in the U S we have like, oh, do you believe in love at first sight or not? And then that's pretty much it. Anyways, I'm going to get too caught up on each one of these words. So continuing. Next word is a German word, Schadenfreude. And in English, that means malicious joy. The German translation is joy at another's pain, which I think is awesome that they have a word for that. Sure, you could say malicious joy in English, but it's not nearly as hard-hitting as having a word that conveys the understanding that, oh, that person that I don't like tripped or fell or got hurt, and I found it entertaining. Which, you know, that's not the sweetest sentiment, but it's awesome because by having that word in that language and that culture, the people participating in that culture have validation for that feeling. Okay, I'm not a crazy jerk who enjoys pain because my language has experienced this so much that people have assigned a word to that experience, which is so important in self-esteem, self-validation, and, and just seeing one's own experiences as, as valid and good. 
maybe not good, but you know, valid. We'll stick with the word valid. Next word, koino yokan, or group of words. I don't know. It's Japanese. And like I said a second ago, in the US, we have, oh my God, do you believe in love at first sight? We have all these shows, Love Island, that's UK, but you know, all these shows that just put people together and like, okay, fall in love with each other. And a lot of times we see through it as just BS reality TV, but it's still entertaining and you're like, great. This Japanese word does not refer to love at first sight. It refers to the premonition of love. When you see someone or you meet someone for the first time and you have this instant just like, okay, yeah, I'm going to fall in love with this person. And maybe it's not immediate, but you're, you're saying to yourself, looking at this person, reacting the way that they make me react, I know that given enough time, I will fall in love with them. And I was like, holy, because I've never experienced love at first sight, but that felt like something that I've experienced before. And instantly it validated that experience, which is such a powerful, powerful thing. And I'm going to keep saying that because the amount of people that go about their lives feeling things and thinking things all the time that they don't necessarily share, so then they don't necessarily get that validating feedback, which can be the difference between just sitting on an issue or something that makes you upset and and just letting it tear you down or attacking it head on, putting it out there and then moving on from it, which I don't think I need to say how life-changing those experiences added up can can be and in english i'm going to give the english translation for these because i think some of them are hilarious that word translates to feeling of love which blah next word another german word fisselig it means flustered to the point of incompetence due to nagging or being closely watched by someone important i.e a superior or someone you find attractive anything like that, but you get to the point where maybe you're tripping over words or you can't perform optimally. And you know what the English translation for that is? Fiddly. Yeah. Again, English sucks. Next word, um, probably my favorite one, can't even pronounce it. So it's uh, Yagan, uh, the language called Yagan from Tierra del Fuego. Mame halapinopitopai. Sorry. A look shared by two people, each wanting the other to initiate something they both desire, but neither wanting to begin. And by the way, this is a Guinness World Record holding word for most succinct word. And if I absolutely agree, I mean, everyone's been in that situation, right? You're, you're Maybe you're in a social circle, someone says something and you look to your close friend and you're just like, you know what each other's thinking and like one of you and you're just like, oh my God, like how... And like they have a word for that come on what are you gonna say in english i didn't even i don't even think there's an english translation so yeah think about that one and again validating experience is amazing a thai word grang jai is needing help but feeling bad for asking i think a lot of us can relate to that you know even if it's a close friend family member someone you know would be happy to help you you're just too overwhelmed by this feeling of I can't reach out. I can't inconvenience them. I can't do this or that, that you don't ask for help. And so in this culture, they have a word for that. They have the validation of that experience. And in my, you know, I would guess that that makes it easier for people to deal with those feelings. Um, Sawdade, 
again, I I don't even, I should have looked up pronunciation for these, honestly, but we're just going with it. It's a Portuguese word and it refers to the longing or nostalgia for something you've never experienced or may never experience again. And this is one of my favorites because it's so just like, I don't know if it's something a lot of people have experienced, but when I read it, I was like, wow, I feel like I have that a lot. When you think about when you, especially online now, you're over overloaded with people doing life stuff, you know, doing a backflip over an island on a wakeboard on a speedboat somewhere. And you're like, oh my God, that's so crazy. And you know, like, I'll never be able to do that. And you have this sort of like, man, like, oh, it'd be great to be there or be back there or something or something you've never done before or a place you'll never visit again. That just like deep feeling of, man, I wish I could, I wish I could see that one more time or you, you want to rewind and do something over again. It's that really just, sometimes it'd be pretty overwhelming, but they have a word for it in Portuguese. Great for them. In English, you know what this means? Missing. I miss this. And that does not do any justice to the depth of feeling that this kind of definition articulates, right? And and just allowing for a feeling to deepen and grow roots and really like place itself in your experience is so important. And when you don't have words to allow that to happen, these things just kind of either get misassigned or brushed over or we never really address them fully. And, you know, I'm going to keep repeating myself, but that ain't, that ain't it. Next word, Tagalog, Filipino language. Gijil. It's wanting to hug something cute. Of course, we need a word for that. Everyone, everyone has that. Come on now. Next word is... Um, Heige, it's Danish. It's talking about the intense coziness or contentment that you might have either with someone or some people that you love dearly, friends, relationships, family, or you could have this feeling alone, just really, really raw contentment. Oh my gosh, I'm sitting by this fire. I'm reading a book. I'm drinking some hot cocoa. And I am just utterly content. I could sit in this moment forever. That's what this Danish word refers to. And, you know, English, we would translate this word as fun. Lots of things are fun. Playing sports is fun. Um, Watching an entertaining TV show could be fun. But it does not nearly encapsulate the essence of coziness by a fire with nothing or nowhere to be. And that's, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. Next word is a Welsh word called hyreth. hyreth. <laughs> I give up. Homesickness for a home that you can't return to or that never existed. Longing, yearning, nostalgia, persistent feeling. And this one was really, really cool um, because you think about who this would apply to. Think about people in Ukraine, young kids who have seen their homes, the places they grew up, the country that they love just destroyed and, and pulled away from them to the point where they can probably never get it back in the way that it was before. And this is a really probably more common than one might think, but 
this is a really strong feeling. And the, the way they articulate it is really helpful, I think, because homesickness for a home you can't return to or that never existed, which I think is really interesting because we have the word homesickness in English. We understand what it means. But homesickness for a home that never existed is really, it adds another layer to that because it's like you could maybe see how other people or families operate and you could see love elsewhere outside of yourself and you could just have this intense feeling of homesickness for that. Even though you never directly experienced it, you can almost see it and simulate it in your mind to the point where you can feel like it's something that you've lost. Which, dude, if we're learning anything from these words, is that the human experience is so goddamn complex, and sometimes it sucks, but sometimes it's just crazy, absolutely crazy. And to think that we can go about our lives and just, you know analytically, oh, this is that. I'm feeling this way because this person did that to me. It's like we are hopeless and stupid if we think that we can possibly have full emotional understanding of ourselves given a single language of thousands. Like the only person who's completely, utterly understanding of themselves is a person who can speak, understand, and um interact with every language and culture there is which i don't know of anyone of that nature they sound pretty overpowered to me but um yeah like just really think about the amount of times you've used a word to describe yourself whether it's something about your appearance oh i'm ugly or i'm stupid or i am incompetent or i'll never be able to do this it's like you're using words that have been created over a extended period of language evolution by people outside of your own experience with varying definitions of those words and you're using it in kind of a, an abstract way to describe you, the person looking through your eyes, the, the person inhabiting the body that you were born with, which will inevitably grow old and wither away back into the ground you know, sorry to be death or whatever, but that's the way it is. And we, we use these words and we give them so much power and then we don't stop and think, okay, what does that mean? Am I ugly? What is, what does it mean to be ugly? And, and you break these things down and you're like, oh my gosh, like we are in a sense, a slave to the language that we were given at birth because you can't step out of the sphere of thought that's created by the compiling of your native tongue. I don't know if that made sense, but it felt right. Okay, so last word. Um, I saved this one for last because it spoke to me greatly and it it's, was so utterly simple. And the fact that this word exists in the language of one of my favorite countries that I've never been to, Greece, this is a Greek word. Parea, P-A-R-E-A. I'm going to spell that one because it's the last one and the best one. And Parea refers to a venue or stage, which could be metaphorical, where friends, family, whatever, speak about life philosophies, 
ideas and values. It is a place where the development of friendships occurs and the growth of the human spirit is nurtured. And dude, come on. Come on. If you've listened to this podcast, this word is right up my alley. And it is almost like, (laughs) it almost made me mad that I've never heard this word before. And I was like, you know, doing my thing. I'm going to look it up in English. Couldn't wait to be disappointed. And based on that definition of that word in Greek, the English language is like, oh, yeah, that means company. Oh, my God, dude. Are you kidding me? Company? Company. You're going to take that word and with all of its intricacies and, and, you know, specifications and how kind of beautiful it is, like... And you're going to say, yep, that means company. I'm having company over. No, you're not having a Perea, my friend. You're having company. You're having having in-laws to your house for a national holiday. Congratulations. You are not having a Perea. And let me say this. If one word can be so horribly translated. Oh, I don't even know if this is a whole nother. But okay, think about, let's think about the Bible for a second, right? Greek is a language that is still around today and spoken. I'm 99% sure. What was the Bible written in? Ancient Hebrew. Nobody speaks that anymore. And millions, hundreds of millions of people read the Bible in English and dictate their entire lives They dictate their beliefs. They dictate the way they treat others. They dictate the time that they spend from birth to death based on the English translation of an ancient Hebrew scripture. And if we haven't learned anything from the past 20 minutes of me ranting about other languages, it's that English sucks at capturing the essence of words used in other cultures that exist today. We could go up to someone who speaks... uh, uh, another language (laughs) and we could have them like really articulate okay this doesn't actually literally translate to this i mean it has these intricacies but great we can't do that we can't do that with 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 the bible and any other text like it i'm not just trying to call out the bible but every other text that's translated from really old text it's like you think that you can just oh yep this says da, da 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 and that's what it meant originally and that's what it will mean forever The Bible is a fantastic example of how much language plays a role in our own manipulation of reality. And I don't mean to get religious or anti-religious in this, but really trying to hit home the point of like the, the the essence of your existence and the essence of the existence of those around you can only be articulated by the English language. If you're listening to this, you speak English, maybe you speak another language, that's awesome. So you are like one tier up from us single language blokes. But you can only describe your experience of life on Earth, which is one of an inconceivable number of planets or circulating stars in trillions upon galaxies in an infinite expanding universe. And you're telling me that the English language is sufficient to fully encapsulate the life you live, the feelings you have, the relationships you enjoy, and the things you do and feel and experience. 
dude, come on. That's crazy. Crazy. So what have we learned? <laughs> no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it like that. This isn't this isn't a lesson. I I kind of went longer into the other language words than I had planned to, but I think it was worth it because it's really and I encourage you to look into these things on your own because you may be feeling something right now. You may be dealing with something that you've been dealing with for a while and you're just like really struggling to cope with it or to to validate its presence in your life. And what I want to say is that that might be in large part because of the the words that you have access to as a person born in the geographical location you were born, which kind of sucks, but that's the way life is. Language is used to describe observations of both the external and internal world. Put simply, that encapsulates our our self-esteem, our self-worth, science, literally everything. We have to use language to describe these things. Therefore, language is responsible for shaping our self-image, our self-esteem, our confidence, or lack thereof. Language may suffice in describing the body, describing anatomy, what it does, what it's capable of. But it is far too primitive to fully encapsulate the self. The person that gets fascinated by a specific topic, the person who feels ecstasy and bliss when they do their favorite thing, the person who looks into another person's eyes and and cares deeply for that person and, and can't describe the level of depth of feeling for that person. We're constantly evolving complex entities and individuals. And there's something truly amazing about that. But when we rely too heavily on words to try to describe and categorize those experiences were really all we're doing is subtracting from the magnitude and the absolute goddamn glory and wonder of the fact that you are are capable of contemplating these things the fact that i can even sit down and talk about this i can analyze how my own analyzation affects my life I can analyze how the language I use affects myself. And there's something extremely powerful about that, but it also can be a huge crippling handicap if we allow it to run rampant without ever checking it. We use language to create our experience of ourself, which inherently overstates flaws and understates greatness. Think about how often you critique yourself. Think about the words you use, the sentences you create to describe you on a daily basis, whether it's your personality, your character, your emotions, your body. Really think about them and think about how often they come up. And then think about the amount of times you look in the mirror or you reflect in yourself and you use words and sentences to capture the greatness of you. My guess is that there's going to be an extreme, extreme difference in the ratio of those two things. And it's really amazing how powerful 
telling words to yourself can be. You don't really think about it day to day, but month to month, year to year, the way that you critique yourself and describe yourself using your own language dramatically changes your perception of who you are, who you're meant to be, who you can be, who others view you as. And that's extremely powerful, extremely powerful. So I guess what I hope you might take away from this is that language validates experience. It gives it, it gives it commonality. Language tells you, okay, this thing has occurred or exists enough times to be given a category or a word to describe it. But I guarantee you that humans are nowhere near fully describing everything in existence. We live in a time where we know a lot, a lot about ourselves, our psychology, our anatomy, the natural world. We know a lot, but we also don't know shit. (laughs) The more we learn, the more we know what we don't know. And what we do know is that language is amazing. It is beautiful. It can be manipulated in the most complex and wonderful ways through music, art, poetry, journalism, conversation. It exists everywhere. It's fantastic. But it's not capable of describing the essence of life. It's not just it's not capable of describing the essence of you. And I'll leave you now with the words of Rumi, a 13th century Persian poet. Silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation.